to Connections, the new podcast brought to you by the Young Musicians Foundation. Each episode will feature an accomplished and successful musical artist. Rather than just ask a series of stock questions about their accomplishments and their life stories, we'll explore their beliefs, their philosophies, and the perspectives and the insights that are the true basis of a rewarding and successful life as a musician. So if you're interested in pursuing a career in music, or interested in the history of film, television, recording, or are fascinated by the stories of artists who have reached the height of their professions, Connections is the podcast for you. I'm your host, Walter Zoy. Our guest today is legendary trumpet player, session and recording artist, educator, and documentarian Malcolm McNabb. Malcolm can be heard on over 2,000 film and television soundtracks, He's worked with artists as diverse as Aaron Copeland, John Williams, Frank Zappa, and even Michael Jackson. As a soloist, Malcolm has performed with countless orchestras and ensembles, and served on the faculties of UCLA, Pomona College, and the California State University. The following interview is recorded in late December of 2016. Today we have um, a legend, really, in the uh, world of classical music in the world of recorded music. He's been referred to as possibly the most recorded trumpet player in the history of uh, recorded music. It's a great honor to have uh, Mr. Malcolm McNabb with us today. Welcome, Malcolm. Thanks for coming in. Well, thank you. It's nice to be here. Thank you, Walter. Sure, and sorry you're feeling a little under the weather, but I would like to talk with you first, Malcolm, a little bit about your preparation, your preparation um, for this amazing career that you've um, that you've put together for yourself. Let me ask you, what was the when did you know um, that you wanted to be a professional musician? You know, it was pretty early on and it seemed like a ridiculous thing because I got a lot of feedback from people who said, you know, you really can't make a living in music, you know, and including my father, you know. But uh, once I saw the trumpeter on the house and heard him play, uh, I thought, that looks like fun. I'd like to do that. But it was, I think it was nine when, I, when I, that all happened. It took beginning music, but it wasn't that long. But definitely by the time I was 14, I was talking like that's all I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And then my father kicked in with a lot of other rhetoric, you know. <laughs> yeah. Who, who, who wake, makes a living blowing a horn? Come on now, really. So he was a motion picture projectionist working in the theaters, mm-hmm. and um, so therefore I was. And uh, that's what I was doing. I was working in two theaters in Huntington Park, going to work with him, and you know because there's just no way. And maybe that's the impetus of of that with me. You know, the fact that he said you won't, you can't make it. Well, I made it. Yeah, you sure and did. up until the point where he never had a new car in his life. I mean, he kept a lot of old junkers going. But um, when I was able to, I think it was 1985. I bought two Cadillacs at the same time, brand new, and, and drove one of them out to him, a big Fleetwood Brougham, like an 85 sedan, you know. And um, he said, oh, I told you, you know, why are you buying junk like this? I said, well, because I'm not going to use it myself. Here's the keys, you know, it's yours. And I left him in the driveway with it. And, you know, he never really thanked me for it. 
he never said I was all wrong about you or anything like that. And he came, you know, he came to some of my concerts and he heard me play. He was very, so he didn't seem to be impressed that I did make make my way with the trumpet. But I don't think he uh, knew all about it, you know, because he was he wasn't there for most of it, you know, because I've been working for almost fifty years here in in studios in Hollywood. Uh, that most of my performances and my best work uh, were only heard by those people there, and then it got mixed in the background of a of a motion picture someplace where I'd have to say, oh, yeah, I think that's me. Hear, hear that part? You know, <laughs> But, it, you know, it's there's very few things that are prominent like that, you know. Well, it's interesting. My uh, son, who's um, just turned 17, he plays in his high school jazz band, and he had a clinician come in, and uh, my son isn't um, immune from name dropping, and uh, he happened to mention, oh, yeah, it was just uh, it was around that time we had the thing, um, the concert over at uh, in, in Los Feliz, Oh, I, I, do you know of uh, Malcolm McNabb? I just saw Malcolm McNabb. And the guy's eyes got really wide. Malcolm McNabb, oh, my God. And so people still know about you, Malcolm, for sure. This is a young clinician, too. Yeah, well, around here, locally, you know, the people that are involved in music, especially recording music, know who I am. But um, it took a long time for that name to get out there since it hasn't been on very many um, works, any projects, you know. I mean, I think I have three, three screen credits in about... Over two thousand movie and TV soundtracks, you know, and it includes a lot of prominent solos that were uncredited. And so that's what I'm working on now to try to say, "Hey, that's me, Mom," you know, and start collecting those and and leave this behind. Uh, the directions to hear me—if it's almost you have to find an instruction sheet to be able to hear what I've done, mostly, you know. Well, I think you're being pretty modest there, but I mean that is kind of true with the the sort of the, the career that you've had as a, primarily as a session musician. Yeah. It's a, it's work for hire, but you've you've left really quite a, a legacy. Um, I want to get back to your um, sort of more formative years um, when you were learning. Who would you say were your most influential teachers? Well, there were quite a few of them, but really standing out above all of them, in front of all of them, is James Stamp, who was um, probably it'll it'll turn out that he's probably one of the top pedagogues of brass in this century for sure. Looking back on it, I mean. He, um, it was just I was so blessed to run into him as well as other people. But he was he was the guy you know, that uh, you know studied with Max Schlossberg back, and he was in the Minneapolis Orchestra playing first trumpet when he was in the 1920s. <clears throat> so when he moved out here in 1944, you know he started working in the studios and and had a studio at his house. And when it was time for my teacher to say, well, you know something, you've got to move on. I I cried because I thought he was such a great person and and you know he says no but I've done what I can you have to go on to some other teachers and he listed three and and I went through those and the third one was James Stamp and I thought hmm does this mean he's a, works at the post office mainly or something <laughs> I've never heard the name Stamp used ever but you know so I went and it turns out and I kept going for some whatever reason I don't know but he had a lot of the people both Philharmonic people and and Les Brown's band and those kind of players were all if you see these old reproductions or you know they they play this series of the Lawrence Welk show from years back if you look at that picture that three out of the four trumpets I ran into at Jimmy Stamp's studio I mean they were all uh, so many and a lot of less all of Les Brown's brass section you know was studying there but what was it I don't know you just felt like you could play anything when you walked out of the studio and there were no more details that I could identify at that point um, and then realized that you know you stuck with that because it seemed to be working, and stuck with it for 57 years now. 
I still do what he, he told me that first day when I went into the studio. And uh, I've done it, and I've been had other teachers, uh, world-famous teachers, as a matter of fact, Doc Schutzer and Vacchiano and people in the, in the New York Philharmonic and Juilliard. Um, but no one really told me as much as he did about what, re- what really you have to learn and taught it to me and, and helped me internalize it. So uh, you're, you could hear that same thing out of hundreds and hundreds of brass players uh, about James Stamp. Did you go, I'm sorry, um, did you check in with him throughout sort of your studio career? Oh, yeah. I went back, absolutely. And there were a couple of problems that came up, and I had to get in and, and actually had lessons over the phone because I was working every day, mm-hmm. and it wasn't going so well. I would, I'd overdone it, you know, and he was teaching every day. So, you know, when can you come in? Well, I don't know. I have no time. I'm working every day, you know, and every night. I'm doing the, at the shrine, I'm doing the Napoleon, the big, and it's a four-hour blow, you know, on top of the studio work. He said, well, get your horn now. So I had the best lesson I've ever had over the phone, just cradling the phone here. And he got me out of the woods. In five minutes, he got the lips back together, and everything was working. I was happy, and I was ready to whistle whistle away. Wow, this is great. It's all it's all fixed. So then that lesson I had over the phone, I uh, primarily in my mind was, boy, will I be able to do this when I get in this trouble by myself? Mm-hmm. And I did learn to. I, I did, and I give it to other people, too, that, that uh, there's a technique involved that when you, you have overdone it and you did a lot of loud playing, that your lips actually get spread, you know, on a brass instrument. And once they are, there's no way to get them back together except the way he prescribed. It's just soft, long tones, bring your lips all back together. And more importantly, to start your tone with the air instead of buzzing your lips, thinking about push the air down there and let the lips start vibrating and do their thing naturally with the, with the air. And I've learned how to do that technique with anywhere from three to five to 10 minutes of that. <whistles> Brings you right to the, the best, the way we would call the sweet spot, you know, mm-hmm. that uh, as players, and it's on all instruments, it's true. You know, geez, yesterday wasn't too good of a day. I hope today is better. On trumpet, that's a hard thing to do, you know, to have that... Uh, to only know that much about it, you know, like right. what's going to happen when you pick it out of the out of the case next time, you know. Well, that's what it led to with a teacher like that, you know, that I I knew, you know, that that once you got on that track, you know, you could you could always be consistent, and that that playing consistently uh, is the beginning of consistent uh, consistent playing, and you know, so you can be counted on and have the uh, the confidence to, to do it. You know, you want today to feel like yesterday and tomorrow would feel the same you don't want any surprises picking it up especially when you're in a big orchestra in a hollywood soundstage and the and you can hear a pin drop and there the notes there for you to play you got to hit it you know right yeah trumpet to me has always been mysterious that way because so much of it happens either behind the mouthpiece or even inside your mouth that in order to really take that apart element by element i mean it, it really takes a special sort of insight and I thought that, uh, I mean, I didn't have the honor of uh, studying with uh, with uh, Jim Stamp, but uh, I did work through some of the books that he put out there and, and other trumpet teachers who um, had either worked with him directly or worked with people such as yourself who had that sort of almost direct connection to him. But um, I found that really sort of incredible that he was able to, to pull apart those elements um, and and communicate that as as effectively. I mean, he's on the curriculum of every trumpet program. Yes, he is now for sure. That yeah, that I'm aware of. So that's that's incredible that you you're, you're sort of a direct connection to that. Um, 
I'm going to ask you a kind of a technical question here about um, practicing. So specific to trumpet players here, but I think this has sort of analogs to other instruments as well. What would, I'm going to give you four areas of, um, of practice, and if you could rate them for you uh, in order uh, of importance. Um, long tones, flexibility, foundational studies, that would be number one. Number two, scales. Number three, technical studies. Or number four, um, artistry or um, actually practicing the repertoire. I just think that, you know, people talk about how to practice and, you know, practice makes perfect has been the slogan, uh, you know, that we've grown up with. But that's not really true. Only perfect practice makes perfect. So you can easily practice and practice and practice something wrong and play it very wrong very well (laughs) and consistently, you know. But um, that was probably the best thing that I ever that I ever learned about that. The details of uh, about tone production Mm. uh, and how to how to approach it every day. I just think thinking perfect practice makes perfect. That means every little detail. You have to make sure that you can get to the point where what the page is telling you to do, the notation, the music notation, you play absolutely 100% correctly. And then you take it from there as interpretation after that point. But you have to play technically perfect and make sure all the notes with no bad sounds are in there. And so that's it's a particular challenge to do that. So um, I, I think that... Uh, just practicing. Uh, well, I play. I practice eight hours today. Well, what did you practice? I don't know. I just played and played. That's uh, you know. You just go around in circles on that. You know, it's not really. Uh, so that we're back to this. Perfect practice makes perfect. If you spend the time doing the things that are really really important and thinking about, and probably the the biggest issue there is pitch center. Mm. If people could just stick to pitch center, pitch center to pitch center. You have to leave the center of one note, go into the center of the next, whether you're articulating or slurring. Uh, and I didn't realize how important that was until, you know, I got into trouble a couple mm-hmm. times. And, and I realized, hey, if you stick to that, you can't miss, you know. And uh, you, you warm up every day um, thinking in those terms, you know, mm-hmm. um, that, uh, that you have a pitch source to deal with and you have a, a time source like a metronome. Uh, so the rhythm of changing between notes is perfect. That's what you want to do. So, um, you know, it's a continual uh, struggle and process, you know. Mm-hmm. And I've been playing the trumpet now for 65 years. Of my, of my, so, I mean, that's probably the other key uh, ingredient, you know. Yeah. Find out how to do something correctly and do it for a long time. Consistency. Yes. <laughs> then you get good at it. <laughs> and or uh, at the same time, you'll... Problems will arise, as you'll notice, and hopefully you're you were equipped to fix those. Yeah. And pretty much I was. Kind of, the kind of teachers I had that were, were so generous. Uh, that was the other part of it. Not only their uh, their knowledge base, you know, was so incredible, and they had been there and done it, but kind and generous yeah. went along with it. Well, the the kind of practice, um, your philosophy of practice, and you know the teachers that you had. Uh, in your formative years, um, sounds like the perfect setup for the kind of career that you had. How old were you approximately when you started working professionally? If we count what I did in high school, you know, playing gigs on weekends with a, a band, um, you know, just doing dances. And of course, that was new for me too, you know, like playing in a small band, like n- not a big band, but just a one trumpet, rhythm, three saxes, that kind of thing, and played bar mitzvahs, weddings. Uh, and uh, then later, through knowing those guys, I ended up 
in the contest at the Hollywood Bowl, the Battle of the Bands in 1960. I was there, and uh, actually we could have been disqualified if they knew I went came from another school. <laughs> it was the Montebello High School big band, uh, which was the Esquires, and these guys worked with me, and then they, something happened to their regular first trumpet of the school, so they aced me in there, and uh, and I was a, a sort of a, a ringer, and we won. <laughs> but I'd, I've been doing that. And playing in the Pasadena Symphony and, you know, groups like the Young Musicians Foundation uh, and traveling to Orange County and just driving all over playing those kind of gigs in Southern California. So I was doing that early on, probably by the time I was in, uh, you know, a junior in high school. Wow. Probably I was working every weekend, you know. And didn't look back. Didn't look back. No, I went on to Pasadena City College. I was having trouble with just doing nothing but academics. And uh, at that point, couldn't resist the, the chance to take off with them with the uh, San Francisco Ballet Orchestra on an eight-week tour of one-nighters, which was my first real professional gig, and which took us back to New York, too, where I auditioned, uh, just for the heck of it, because I thought I would never knew much about military bands, so I auditioned for the uh, West Point Band. And, uh, well, they, they coaxed me into it. I didn't really want to. Well, why? I don't want to be in the Army, you know. Well, at the end of the tour, I got back home, and there was a draft notice waiting for me, you know, see, uh, report, you know. And so I hurried up because I had to report, you know, for basic training to Fort Ord and, and called West Point, and they said, absolutely, you got it. That was a good gig to get if you could get in there. So, so I took it. I did it, you know, and uh, it was close to New York City, just 50 miles. And so that's the way I got in with the teachers from the New York Philharmonic, luckily. And they had the right attitude about it that, geez, you know, you guys are, you know, defending our country. I didn't, I wasn't in. This was Vacchiano's thing. He says, I'll, I'll teach you, you know. Even though he's teaching at Juilliard, Manhattan, Manus, like at least three or four schools. So we went to his house on Sunday mornings, you know, and I got in with other people at the point who had been studying with him just through a recommendation. Can you teach this guy Malcolm? Okay, so... And then John Ware, Johnny Ware also was a great musician, was in the New York Philharmonic too. So I studied with both of those. And so uh, we had people that went right there, right from there to the Chicago Symphony and different things like, I mean, incredible players that were sat in the third clarinet section. You look over there and the guy that was there, what was his name? Larry Combs. Oh yeah, he was in the third clarinet. I never heard him play alone. First clarinet in Chicago Mm. within a year. Well, <laughs> and so uh, and then so uh, everyone was highly qualified. So I was never with so many great players up at that point, and I was like twenty years old. You know, and it was a great time. It was a great uh, influence on me. And then you came back to Los Angeles, and um, seems like you got into the studio world pretty quickly after that. I hung in there for probably about at least three years before I got anything going. You know, right. and, and then I started getting maybe one or two concerts in a season with the Glendale Symphony, third trumpet. You know. And, uh, you know, people are established. There's a lot of work here, especially back then with the TV film, the TV right. series. Three years of plugging away is preparing yourself for opportunity and opening yourself up for opportunity. And when you get that opportunity, you got to be prepared. Yes. Otherwise, it's a wasted opportunity. That's right. No, that's a, one of the um, documentary things I've been working on. One of the guys we interviewed had an interesting thing involving a graph you know you mentioned a little bit about it before but say if you had just two elements in that graph you have this one trajectory is coming we'd call preparation Mm -hmm. preparedness the other one is opportunity so when you got a chance of those meeting it's miller time 
Well, it's time to uh, succeed or fail. But that's your moment, you know, and that's exactly what happened with me. Whatever I did get to do, I was very blessed, I would say, definitely. Uh, I feel like very, uh, very blessed that, you know, these opportunities were there for me. And I can go right back to my teachers that were so nice to me, that that taught me uh, with so much generosity and, Mm. and kindness. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to do it. I mean, the name of the, the of this program is called Connections. The sort of hack phrase for that, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And I think that's just utterly cynical and, and untrue. I and mean, there's aspects of that. It's really about what you know leads to people that you get to know. And then, right. you know, you, you build those connections outwards. Right. But your set of connections, are, I think, are especially... Um, especially interesting and I think really evocative of Los Angeles as a city. And we'll talk about this first person I'm going to mention. We'll talk about him more toward the end. But, I mean, we can draw a direct line from, through you, we can draw a a direct line from Pancho Villa to Frank Zappa to Michael Jackson to John Williams and then back around again. I don't know of anybody else, literally probably thousands of people, all in between there, but just to name four people who, on the surface of it, seem pretty disconnected. No, you had a direct connection to yeah. e- each and every one of those people. Even Aaron Copeland. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I think there's a quote um, Aaron Copeland had about you as a player. Um, uh, referring to you, I think he said, Malcolm McNabb, who plays like very few from Aaron Copeland. Is that correct? I think he said he plays trumpet like very... Uh, like few, very few, or yeah. something like that. I have an autograph program that says that on it. That concert was an all Copeland concert that was conducted mostly by Aaron Copeland. Mm. And we did The Quiet City. So that's why I ended up in a private conference with him in the green room there at Royce Hall. And it was what I, I the main issue was about the approach to that piece. If you know the, the piece featuring strings, English solo English horn, solo trumpet. <clears throat> and it's um, the very opening. Um, you know, how do you approach that? It's sort of like these notes that get faster and faster, but... That's what I thought, you know, but always I'd hear various approaches to it. Here I am with the guy that wrote it, and I asked him about it, and he says, yes, it's the bouncing ball. It's like a basketball. So if you're dribbling, it's it's going to go... That's the concept. Right. That's how to play. It's no, no, nothing more than that. To have a private meeting and actually be uh, successful and have him say so was great. It was one of my, one of my top moments so far. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I would put maybe not quite in that echelon, but I would, I would put coming from where I come from, I would put Frank Zappa almost in that same sort of coterie yeah. of American composers. Yes. No. He's uh, recognized. I'm glad that even after he's gone. Um, it continued to be, he was very mainstream as, you know, he'll find his place in there as a great, uh, a genius of composers, no question about it. Uh, but a different approach, <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah. You know, uh, and he had a, uh, uh, he stuck to his standards more than anyone else I've ever seen. He, he absolutely stood fast. An orchestra would invite him to come play and they say, well, we have, yeah, we'll have enough rehearsal. We, every week we have a different program and you have three rehearsals during the week. I want three weeks just on that one piece. Well, we can't do that. Okay, bye. Wow. And that's why he was didn't do too much that way, but he would have done much more. Well, there was the new American Orchestra with 
Jack Elliott and Alan Ferguson, they, he wouldn't do that because they wouldn't give him rehearsal time. I mean, uh, he finally found a group of musicians that could play his music. Like, that's actually one time he said that about me. It's actually out on YouTube. Uh, uh, this Ensemble Contemporain, which mm-hmm. is Boulez's group in France, in Paris. And that's a group of young people who play anything. They're just all fantastic players. And they're dedicated to playing and working on music like that. So he was happy. He was already sick. It was at the end of his life. But mm. he was able to go sit them and listen to them play his music and play it perfectly. As I remember, Frank walked in one day to rehearsal and he said, you know, there's this, I met this trumpet player, Malcolm McNabb, his name is, he says, and he, he's the only one that can play my music correctly. <laughs> Thank you, Frank. That's, you know, if I, that's a, if I, that's a little buzz yeah. right there. And, um, you know, among musicians, certainly people, it's a feather in your cap. I mean, if you were able to work with Zappa and not get fired or, you know, because he had a lot of side men and very demanding guy, um, then you must have been something. You know? oh, yeah. <laughs> and what was the original name of the bebop tango? I think I know. Uh, the Malcolm McNabb. That's right. As a matter of fact, I was called up to, by Frank to come to his house up in Woodrow Wilson Drive there. With the house just sold to Lady Gaga, by the way. She lives there now. Wow. And uh, $5.5 million. In that house, it was like a little after midnight, I think. You know, He asked me, come up and bring your D trumpet. So he had written this thing on his guitar. You know, and this I look at this black page. Wow, it's not there is a there is a thing called known as a black page that he wrote too. But the you know this whole thing in the intervals, you know, for a trumpet. So, you know, he says, "Wow, you think you can do this?" I said, "I hope so." And you know, we listen to a little bit of it and try to play it. And instead of saying, well, "You think that's going to be all right?" He says, "Do you think you'll be able to dance and play that?" <laughs> well, that's Zappa, you know. <laughs> So we had it all. We had all the 22 instruments all recorded in my studio already, um, including about five or six Zappa alumni around there. So we call Vinny, or Gary Grant calls Vinny and says, hey, can we come over and you know, do this drum thing on? Oh, yeah, no problem. Get over there in his garage. He's got drums set up with the Pro Tools, is, you know, all set. And, you know, I call you listen to the track. He listened to it. Hey, that's wild. Let's do it. You know, did a take. Uh, perfect. Mm. I couldn't see anything that was off. Mm. The, the, in that in that bebop tango, there's a couple bars that'll be like, for instance, eight in one beat, six on the next beat, seven, five. <laughs> you know, and those are all groups that have to be perfect. So when we were recording it, it had to line up. You know. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> After the fact. Yeah. yeah. Oh. And he he played it perfect, and he just laid on the floor listening to this playback with me and Gary, and he just was laughing, tickled. He thought it was the funniest thing he ever heard, and Gary says, "Well." I don't know what to say, but it's, it's perfect. You wanted to make it, oh, let's do another one, another perfect one. Wow. And then you didn't want to be paid for it. Yeah, I'd like to talk about a couple of things right now. Number one, what you're currently doing. And number two, you really, from our vantage point at, at YMF, are really establishing yourself as, as a mentor. You're in the process of setting up uh, a number of really sort of high-profile Scholarships, which to me is is just one of the most sort of um, uh, effective and authentic uh, forms of mentorship, because scholarships go on, 
and you're naming them after your your influences and your mentors. Can you tell me a little bit about your scholarships? That's what it's all about, naming them in the names of my teachers who were very generous. And, and, you know, it's just all based on that, as I remember it, there, someone was there for me to help. You know, I mean, there was always help. By and large, overall, there was most nothing but help coming from people for me. And I realized, therefore, that's what I have to do. I really believe in it, you know. Well, one thing that's especially impressive to me is that, I mean, you've uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, you've got the uh, the Walter Larson Scholarship, and you've got the James Stamp Scholarship, and you not only, of course, make the funds available, um, but you really make it a point to sit down with the scholarship recipient and make sure that that person knows about Walter Larson and knows about James Stamp. And- I think most of the trumpet players are going to know that Walter Larson. That's a little more obscure the son of a Danish baker who had the first Danish bakery in Pasadena, 1920s. Walter was working in there, delivering pies, whatever, you know, but he grew up here. Talk about generosity. Such a beautiful person. At YMF, for a a couple of years now, you've um, had a a scholarship named after um, somebody who was influential to you, the Ewan Racy Scholarship. Well, MGM, he was on staff there as first trumpet. So when you see that's entertainment, you can pretty much say that Ewan's there Mm -hmm. on, on all of it. Featured as soloists in American in Paris and Meet Me in St. Louis and you know a lot of the things they did when you see those collections of the of the musicals you know he's there yeah and and something that's especially exciting to me um, as it relates to YMF and as it relates to mentorship and as it relates to the musical and just cultural heritage of Los Angeles it's just all seemingly coming together with a, a new scholarship that you're literally just about to endow in the name of Rafael Mendez, who was a huge influence on me as a kid. And um, if could you tell me a little bit about what's inspired you to uh, set this up? I don't think I'm alone. I think every trumpet player on the planet who ever heard of Ralph, uh, Rafael Mendez, uh, play is inspired and continue to be inspired by his many recordings. The I always heard how generous he was, but my God, he just he mm. was un- unbelievable over the top. Uh, you'd be afraid to say, well, geez, that's a nice shirt, because he would take it off and give it to you. <laughs> Amazing, you know, uh, and such a wonderful, it was all about love with him. So it was interesting, because here's a story about a Mexican uh, boy that came, very talented out of a musical family, ends up being kidnapped by Pancho Villa, coming up to live here as an American, and uh, and he was all about Los Angeles, too. I mean, you know, he he was just a great all-around player. I mean, he was a virtuoso uh, called the Heifetz or the Paganini of the trumpet, really. There was nothing that he could play. I mean, he could play circles around anyone without even trying, you know. Yeah, and for anybody who hasn't heard of or heard Rafael Mendez, just do a quick uh, YouTube search, and there there are some things on there that are literally breathtaking. Thank God he recorded a lot, you know, and that's really what made him do that because he got that lost that job, you know, and we have now we have these all these great recordings that he did and continues to inspire people who weren't old enough to even know him then, you know, and now they'll be there forever, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, what a beautiful man, you know, just the time we spent with him that afternoon with all the trumpet players went over with you on Racy, that Al Vizzuti and Chuck Finley and a few other guys went and hung out with him all day long, and, and he told his life story there to us and played for us a little bit. He showed us the the activities, his latest projects he's doing, you know. Well, I've heard stories that he would turn down, you know, pretty high-paying soloist gigs um, because he'd made a commitment to a high school band teacher in Downey, for an example, and yes. that that was his number one. 
Very true. Very true. He loved the kids. He loved to work with youth. I mean, their excitement. Um, I think he typically did that. Say in those days, in the maybe the nineteen fifties, especially the, probably a big salary for him appearing in a solo and a role, ten thousand dollars or something like that. He wouldn't take it. He wouldn't. Do, he was. He'd rather go work with that high school group. You know that he just loved the uh, the kids and their excitement. He, you know, he just fed off of that. And uh, yeah, he would do that a lot. Well, I mean, we're we're honored to you know to be able to to house that that scholarship at YMF, and um, and we're going to really try to um, rekindle sort of the the Mendez um, reputation, legend, and and lore in Los Angeles um, through. On uh, March 27th, coming up 2017, um, at our gala, uh, Rafael Mendez is posthumously going to receive the very first uh, Betty Lou Gross Inspiration Award. We couldn't think of anybody who matched the criteria of what it would be to to receive an, an award for inspiring young people to not only music and art, but education and just achievement. We're in the process, actually, together, you and I and uh, your good friend, um, Arturo Sandoval and Gio Santos, putting together what we hope will be a, a, a major concert celebrating the life of Mendez and um, hopefully uh, drawing some attention not only to the scholarship that, that you've endowed, but to the, the, the legacy that, that he's left behind. So we thank you for that, Malcolm. Just sort of in closing, I know that um, one of the uh, your major sort of initiatives lately has been this uh, has been Camp McNabb, the proceeds of which um, you take in, in their entirety and 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 donate to your scholarship funds. So this is uh, another form of your mentoring. But um, I know that you've got some plans um, coming up for expanding uh, Camp McNabb, perhaps taking it internationally. We've had offers to maybe go to Berlin and do it there, where uh, most folks could get any place from Europe, you know, and, and participate, you know, within hours. But um, also maybe do it twice a year in this country, mm-hmm. uh, maybe once on the East Coast, once on the on the West Coast. And so for those who might not be familiar with the, with Camp McNabb, it, it's a, uh, a week long? Six days. Six days? It's, um, all day long, six days in a row, um, sessions, clinics uh, for trumpet players? Um. Well, it, mainly it's trumpet. It started as a trumpet workshop. And, um, you know, obviously the, the, the material works with all brass instruments. Mm. Anyone that has a cup mouthpiece who blows a trombone, a French horn, a tuba, any of the other bra- in the brass family are also, uh, and this is the way gen- uh, Stamp taught, you have to feel it. It's a discovery method. I'm going to show you some things, and I want you to feel them before you leave this door because that that's the way I felt when I came out of Stamp Student Studio and I, I went in with problems came out and they were, it was all over without a discussion a lot of times it, you did get it fixed and not only that you were going to walk out the door and I can I feel like I can play anything now you know it was like that and so I wanted to have that experience too you know and I invite people like guest artists um, who would um, you know if you're going to be in town and you're like just uh, we don't have to schedule it now but just let me know during that week if you're available come on over so we had Arturo Sandoval pop in the room and of course people just almost fainted you know mm-hmm. and then Wayne Bergeron oh it's Wayne oh my god you know and they're all trumpet jocks and and they love it you know they go they know who he is and uh, Gary Grant and Chuck Finley and regularly we have Jim Thompson from Eastman School of Music and across the hall the jazz professor is Clay Jenkins. The only one really never studied with Stamp, but he does similar stuff, is Jim Thompson. But he brings to it incredible, enormous amounts of value. 
he's um, he's played in four major orchestras. And he also, like in recent years, he's gone in for two weeks at a time or whatever, just sitting in the L.A. Philharmonic, then the Chicago Symphony, then, you know, I mean, so he does it like that. He's such a good orchestral player. Done it all. Yeah. Played with almost every con- conductor. So a, a valuable uh, person. And we set up for if people, there's no pressure to play at this workshop, Camp McNabb. It's all voluntary. If you want to do it, uh, you can have a, a, a master class with someone that really is going to teach you some things. And we really strive to have a, a crew that's, non-judgmental. I want it to be the most comfortable type of uh, environment of, for this sort of thing that, that they've ever seen. Is there a, a website or a place people could go to find out about any uh, of your current or upcoming recording projects? Yeah, it, it's in this. I think you'll find all that information on Facebook or on my website, knockamcnab.com. Mm-hmm. As far as the, des- the dates will be there. If they're not there now, they'll be there eventually. We just sort of putting that together now. Malcolm, it's been a real pleasure to uh, speak with you. I'm Thank you for coming in, even though you're feeling under the weather. And um, it's just a wonderful inspiration to know that someone who's had the career that you have and has the heart that you have is still, not still, but as more than ever out there trying to inspire and mentor people of all ages to be um, to reach really their full potential, whether that's music or anything across the board. And uh, those are the kind of connections that we like to make here um, at YMF and at the, uh, the Connections podcast. And just thank you, Malcolm. And thank you, Walter, for your dedication and your belief in, the, in what you do. I know you, you founded a conservatory and um, what you brought to the YMF in this, what, eight or nine months that you've been here? Amazing progress, <laughs> amazing ideas, really, really some new stuff. Really, what a pleasure! And I'm, I'm really want to stay tuned and see how what this, this all develops into. It's getting better and better. I know. I just can't wait for the next, the next big deal. You know. Thanks. It's, it's a team effort. It's a great team that we have, and uh, you know, and you're a huge part of that, Malcolm. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Connections, produced by the Young Musicians Foundation. Our theme music was composed by Bruce Broughton. For more information on the Young Musicians Foundation, please contact our website, ymf.org. My name is Walter Zoy, and we'll see you next time.